If you have your Bibles, I'll invite you to open to Isaiah chapter 52. Isaiah 52, we're going to pick up in verse 13, and we're going to go all the way through the end of Isaiah chapter 53. 53. So Isaiah 52, 13, through to the end of Isaiah 53. Um, as you're turning there, I'll tell you that I'm, I'm thinking about two, uh, two geographic points as I come to this sermon. One is Mount Sinai, and one is the Grand Canyon. Let me tell you what I mean. Uh, Mount Sinai. Do you remember when Moses goes to meet the Lord on Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 3? And God says to Moses, take off your shoes for your own holy ground. Do you remember that? I feel a bit like that as we come to this passage. All of God's word is holy. There are some passages of God's word where that holiness feels almost tangible. This is one of those passages. The second point is the Grand Canyon. I've only seen the Grand Canyon once from an airplane, and it was gorgeous. I'm sure that if I went down into the Grand Canyon, it would also be gorgeous in a different way. We're going to fly over the Grand Canyon today. We're not going to go down into the bottom of it. Um, this text is magnificent. You could spend, we could spend uh, seven sermons, maybe, on this one chapter. Um, we're going to do it in one. <laughs> So it's a bit like flying over the Grand Canyon. It's going to be amazing. There might be points you want to go back and look at more closely, and I trust that the Holy Spirit will lead you to do that. So as we get ready to read, just please, please pray um, for, for me and for us, even as we're reading God's Word uh, right now. Let's listen to what God says to us in the Scriptures. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church, beginning in verse 13 of Isaiah 52. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up. And shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet... It was the will of the Lord 
to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our good. Let's pray now as we consider God's word. Father, help us. Help us, God, to believe what it is that is revealed here through the prophet Isaiah, that though he speaks some seven centuries before the coming of Christ, Lord, help us to see the Lord Jesus in his work, in his glory, in his perfection, in his suffering, and in his triumph. Help us, God. Lord, we pray that you would please build up your church now through the preaching of your word. Please encourage the faint-hearted. Please comfort the mourning. Please strengthen the weak, Father. Please correct the wayward. Please save the lost. Lord, please do all of this by your word, applied by your spirit. Please keep me from error, Father. Help me, help me, please, to unfold the glory of Christ in his word. We ask now in Jesus' name, amen. The book of Isaiah is sometimes called the fifth gospel. And there's no better example of why than our passage this morning. Since Isaiah chapter 40, the prophet has proclaimed good news for the people of God. That good news is simply but wonderfully this, that God Himself is coming to deliver His people and to reign over them as their King in everlasting peace. That has been Isaiah's hope consistently now through the book. Good news is coming. But at the same time, there's also been this question lurking in the background of Isaiah's ministry. That question is this, if God's people are sinful, then how can they ever dwell again with a holy God? If the problem is rebellion against God, then what could possibly reconcile rebels to the very God that they have defied? You see the problem lurking there around Isaiah's message of good news? We certainly want good news. Nobody wants bad news. We certainly want good news. But at the same time, how can a holy God ever dwell again with rebellious, sinful, wicked people? How can you put those two things together? Our passage this morning is the remedy to that problem. Our passage this morning is the answer to that question. More than any other text in this book, chapter 53 shows us why Isaiah is sometimes called the fifth gospel. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Isaiah. In these verses, we hear what is at the heart of Isaiah's good news. It's the saving work of the servant of the Lord, whom we met last week. The saving work of the servant of the Lord, who shockingly suffers on behalf of his people. Even to the point of laying down his own life as the sacrifice for their sin. You see, this, is, this chapter is why Isaiah can say that good news is coming. And for the Christian, there can be no doubt that Isaiah is anticipating here the work of Jesus Christ. All through the New Testament, these words from Isaiah 53 are cited in connection 
with the work of Christ. The references are too numerous to list for you. I can't list them all. There's too many. But the overwhelming weight of the New Testament is that Jesus of Nazareth is the person Isaiah is talking about 700 years before he came. Jesus of Nazareth is the servant of the Lord. Jesus is the one who is pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. It's the overwhelming weight of the Bible. And so, as we study this text today, we need to do so with one eye on Isaiah and the other eye on the work of Jesus Christ. How does Isaiah help us see and treasure the Savior, the Lord Jesus? And to help guide us in that quest with one eye on Isaiah and the other on the work of Jesus, to help, us, to help guide us, I want you to notice a phrase in verse 1 of chapter 53. Look there. Verse 1, Isaiah speaks of the arm of the Lord. You see that? The arm of the Lord. Friends, that phrase is like the north star that will navigate us as we go through this passage. Since chapter 40, Isaiah has been speaking of God's mighty arm. And it was through that arm that God would redeem His people. Well, now here in chapter 53, we learn that God's arm is not merely His power, and the arm of the Lord is not merely a metaphor. The arm of the Lord is a person. The arm of the Lord is a person. Even the servant whom Isaiah describes here. And, and this arm is the Savior through whom God will deliver His people. So that's the guiding truth. That phrase gives us some bearings as we go. There are five stanzas in this song. Five stanzas in this poem. And in each stanza, we see something remarkable, something astounding about the arm of the Lord, about this Savior whom God has raised up to deliver His people. Specifically, we should note the Savior's glory, His suffering, His sacrifice, His humility, and His triumph. Five stanzas giving us five astounding truths about this Savior. Let's begin in verses 13 to 15 of chapter 52 where we see the glory of the Savior. The glory of the Savior. The first stanza opens with God's view of His servant. Notice the threefold praise of verse 13. The servant will be high, lifted up, and exalted, God said. Friends, those descriptions are used a few other places in Isaiah and every time they are applied only to God. So right away, it's clear that the servant of the Lord cannot be the nation of Israel, and the servant of the Lord cannot be merely the prophet Isaiah. No, the servant of the Lord, just as we saw in chapter 42, must be the Messiah. And strikingly, the Messiah is described here in terms that are only used for God in other passages. So you've got language about God and language about the Messiah coming together in one person. Already, your gospel senses should be clicking, preparing you to see the Lord Jesus. Verse 13 also gives us a preview of the servant's work, at least from God's perspective. Notice how God says the servant shall act wisely. You see that? You could also translate that as the servant will succeed or the servant will fulfill what God sends him to do. And that's really the heart of biblical wisdom, isn't it? What does it mean to be wise according to the Bible? It's not just knowing the right thing, it's doing the right thing. And doing it well. And that's part of the servant's glory here in Isaiah, he will act with wisdom. And in doing so, he will accomplish the plan of God. Then we come to verse 14. Though, 
and we find that the servant's glory is not immediately recognized by the world. Notice in verse 14 how people are astonished at the servant. That's not a positive astonishment. It's negative. Their jaws drop. He doesn't look like what the world expects. That's the point of the language about his appearance being marred and his form being beyond recognition. Instead of receiving the arm of the Lord, the world is repelled by him. They find the servant appalling. So notice this tension that's created from the start. The servant is glorious, he's exalted, he's high and lifted up, verse 13 says, and at the same time, the servant is repulsive to the world's way of thinking. You see, it's a small but clear indication that if you're going to receive the arm of the Lord, if you're going to be delivered by the arm of the Lord, you're going to need more than worldly wisdom. You're going to need the very revelation of God Himself to see it. In fact, that's what God implies in verse 15. Look at verse 15. The kings of this earth do not understand the servant of the Lord, but there's a day coming when they will see There's a day coming when their eyes will be opened and they will marvel at this one whom God has raised up. So even in the midst of the world's misunderstanding, there's this note of glory. There's this expectation that the servant will be just as God says. He will be high and lifted up and exalted. Even so, the mixture of glory and rejection there in the first stanza leads us very quickly to the second. Verses 1 to 3 of chapter chapter 53 We know that people will be astonished at the servant of the Lord, but now we begin to see how deep their rejection runs. That's the second truth in this passage from the second stanza. It's the suffering of the Savior. We just saw His glory. Now we see the suffering of the Savior. Verse 1 in chapter 53 carries on with the astonishment that we just read in verse 14. When when people hear of the servant, they cannot believe what they hear. How can this be the arm of the Lord? The world asks. The arm of the Lord is mighty and strong, but the servant is marred and weak. How can he be the Redeemer? How can he be the arm of the Lord? You see, left to ourselves, we will not believe the good news about the servant of the Lord. Left to our own, we will not receive him. It defies worldly understanding. Verse 2 gives you the reason for this persistent unbelief. Notice how verse 2 describes the servant like a young plant or like a root that's struggling to break through the dry ground. Friends, the idea here is that the servant's origins look unimpressive. He comes from nowhere, so you should expect nothing from him. The servant doesn't look like a leader or deliverer. He barely looks like a man, what the world says. And so, just like a gardener would quickly cut off such a measly little root, so also the world utterly despises the servant of the Lord. Notice verse 3, where the servant's suffering is more fully described. He's despised and rejected by men, God says. The point here is not so much hatred as it is indifference. And sometimes, friends, indifference is worse than hatred. At least when people hate you, they notice you. Indifference, people don't care. The world sees the servant and they think, why bother? He's nothing. He's useless. Cast him off. We're not going to miss anything. And that makes the servant a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. You see, the point there is that sorrow and heartache are his only friends. 
The only, th- the only people who stand with him are sadness and grief. That's it. That's the image. In the world's eyes, the servant is not even worthy of a second glance. It's not that they hate him. It's just they don't care. Friends, we overlook this point sometimes in the Christmas story because we just like to focus on the outwardly good things in the Christmas story. But the circumstances of Jesus' birth fit precisely with what we read here in Isaiah 53. I mean, just think about it. Being born in a stable is not an impressive way to start your life. And and just to be real honest, being born to a virgin mother is a real quick pathway to being despised and mocked. In fact, in the Gospel of John, the religious leaders throw this back in Jesus' face when they say to him, we're not born of sexual immorality, saying, we know where you came from, Jesus. We know the story about your mother. The circumstances of Jesus' birth fit this text precisely. And then add to the fact that Jesus grew up in Nazareth of Galilee. Remember when Nathanael says, what good can come from Nazareth? And people reject Jesus because he's from Galilee. Nothing good comes from Galilee. You take all that together and you get exactly what Isaiah foresaw in verses 2 and 3. And then you add to that that at the end of his life, at the end of his life, Who is standing with Jesus as he goes to trial? No one. Sorrow and grief are his only friends. Friends, the servant would be overlooked and despised. And when the Lord Jesus came to earth, that is surely what he experienced. We will never know the full measure of our Lord's sufferings, brothers and sisters. But it is not an exaggeration to think of his every step on earth as being marked by grief. It's not an exaggeration. And you know, that says something about us. That says something about us. Humanity's response to the Savior tells us something about the depth of our problem. Just like Isaiah foresaw on our own, we have nothing but contempt for the Lord Jesus. Left to ourselves, we will scoff at Him and overlook Him along with everyone else. That is the staggering depth of corruption that sin has inflicted on human nature. We can look the servant of the Lord in the face and reject Him without a second thought. We can see the glory of God in Jesus Christ and think to ourselves, not interested, I'd rather watch TV. Friends, you see the horrible reality of fallen human nature? It's Fallen human nature, the horribleness of it, is not just manifested in outward acts of wickedness. That's true. It's also manifested in just indifference to God. I don't care. Whatever. And that's, that's what this text is saying about us. We're not simply sick. We're spiritually dead. Spiritually blind to the point where we see the truth, but we don't see it. We hear the good news, but we don't hear it. That's who we are on our own. We're the people of verse 3, despising and rejecting the Redeemer. And that means, friends, that nothing less than divine revelation can save our souls. In order for sinners like us to be saved, it will take an act of God to open our eyes to see. It will take an invasion of grace to give life to this kind of dead heart. 
If you're here this morning and you don't know the Lord Jesus, then above all, this is what you need. You cannot bring yourself into the kingdom of God. And let me just say it even more pointedly. Your salvation is not even dependent upon you making the right decision. Your salvation is dependent upon God. And listen to me. That's why the gospel is good news. Because it's dependent upon God. If salvation depended on you or me, then you know what? None of us would be saved. None of us would be here. We would be in verse 3, despising and rejecting the Savior. We would be in, the verse, we would be in verse 3 for the remainder of our lives. But the good news of the gospel is that God, upon whom salvation depends, God is gracious. God is gracious. He does what we cannot do on our own. Even now, listen to me, if you're not a Christian, even now, God is working through the preaching of His Word to call sinners like us to Himself. So if you don't know Christ today, then Isaiah's words are calling you to believe. And perhaps most amazing of all, in hearing these words from the Bible, God's grace comes to you and gives you what you cannot have on your own. And that means, friends, the Bible, the Scriptures, the Word of God is both calling you to believe and giving you the grace to believe at the same time. God doesn't leave us in verse 3. It's incredible. It's amazing. It's grace. It's good news. The reality of sin's corruption that we just were considering, that leads us into the third stanza. We're going to look at verses 4 through 6 here. What could possibly atone for the deep and pervasive corruption that sin has inflicted on us. If we are this bad, and we are, what could possibly make that right? That's the third stanza. And the truth here is the sacrifice of the Savior. The sacrifice of the Savior. Even a cursory reading of these verses 4-6 to six should clue you in to the theme of the stanza. Sacrificial language is, is all through these verses. And nowhere more clearly than verse 6. Look at verse 6. Notice how it says that God has laid on the servant the iniquity, the sin of His people. Friends, that verb to lay upon, that verb is used in Leviticus chapter 16 to describe the Day of Atonement. You may remember that if you're on a read through the Bible plan, which I hope you are. You may remember the Day of Atonement, Leviticus 16. The high priest would take his hands and he would lay them on the head of uh, the goat, the scapegoat. And the high priest would confess the people's sins. And in that act of confession, the people's sins were laid upon the, the goat, the scapegoat. They were put upon him, and then the goat would bear those sins away so that the people didn't pay for them themselves. Friends, that's the background here in Isaiah 53. This is, this is priestly, sacrificial, Levitical language being applied to this text. And astoundingly, it's the servant who is the sacrifice. He's not the one doing the sacrificing. He is the sacrifice. It's not a goat being sent away. It's not merely a lamb being sacrificed. It's the servant himself. The very arm of the Lord broken. Again, this is the heart of the passage. Even the way that it's put up. There's five stanzas. The one in the middle is the one that is telling you, look here, look here. This is the key to the passage. So we're going to slow down here and note some important features of the servant's sacrifice. It's not an overstatement to say that our salvation depends upon the features that we're going to note here in these verses. So let's, 
Let's pay attention together. To begin with, we should, we should note how the servant is sacrificed as our substitute. Substitute is the first feature there. In the course of reading through Isaiah, you might make the mistake of thinking that the servant of the Lord suffers because he is a sinner. That's why he was despised and rejected, because he deserved it. But that's not the case at all, as we see here. The servant suffers in the place of his people. Note the pronouns of verse 4. I love a sermon where I can talk about pronouns. Look at the pronouns in verse 4. He bore our griefs, not his own, ours. He carried our sorrows. It's even more powerful in verse 5. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. You see, the servant does not suffer for his own sake. He doesn't have iniquities to be crushed under. He takes ours. He suffers as our substitute, bearing the sins that we committed. Like the priest puts them upon the head of the sacrifice, so also the Lord has laid on the servant the sins of His people. He's a substitute. The second feature we should note is that the servant's sacrifice was penal in nature. That is, he received the punishment our sins deserved. Substitute and punishment. Notice in verse 5 where Isaiah says the chastisement that brought us peace was placed upon the servant. Friends, chastisement is just an old word for punishment. Judgment. Every sin deserves the wrath and curse of God. In fact, God's holiness demands that every sin be punished in accord with God's justice. In order for God to be God, He must punish sin. And amazingly, Isaiah tells us that the punishment our sin deserved was placed upon the servant of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, this is what is happening at the cross of Jesus Christ. He's not merely suffering physical agony, though it is agonizing. He is bearing the spiritual weight of the sins of His people. As the Lord of glory hangs there on the tree, He's receiving the chastisement. He's taking the punishment. He's bearing the wrath that our sin deserved. And listen to me, part of loving the Gospel is recognizing yourself in His suffering. No one is saved by a general or theoretical belief in the death of Christ, that Christ died for sin in general. No, you're saved because you believe that Christ died for my sin. Right? You've got to see yourself in the suffering. Those were my sins He endured. Those were my wounds that He received. That was my forsaken cry that He declared on the cross. The Savior endured all of that in my place. What I deserved, Christ took. That's the, that's the cross of Christ, brothers and sisters. And through the Spirit, the prophet Isaiah foresees that work of grace here in chapter 53. He's a substitute who bears the punishment. We should also note that the servant's sacrifice was personal. Substitute, punishment, personal. This is massively significant. Massively. Notice the very personal language used in these verses. It's clear that the servant suffers in his body. He's pierced, Isaiah says. He's wounded. Now, wounds are not theoretical, right? You can't be pierced or crushed in an impersonal way. In other words, the Bible is not using imagery here. 
or speaking metaphorically. No, this is, this is personal. In offering himself as the sacrifice for sin, the servant bore the punishment of God in his own body. He endured it on the cross. Friends, I hope you see why Advent is essential to the Gospel. This isn't just tradition that we do. Advent is essential to the Gospel. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And without the incarnation of the Son of God, He has no blood to shed. You see it? That means that the first step in the glorious good news of the Gospel is always the incarnation of the Son of God. As the eternal Son takes on human flesh in Mary's womb, already His destination is set for the cross. There is no forgiveness apart from the Savior's blood shed. And there is no blood to shed apart from the incarnation of the Son of God. So just think about how this reshapes the Advent season. Think about how this deepens the wonder at Christmas time. It's not disconnected from the Gospel, is it? As we sing the carols and light the candles and reflect upon Bethlehem, we are not simply observing the miracle of God made flesh. We're also being prepared for Good Friday. We're also being prepared for Easter Sunday, for the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ and His resurrection. In other words, friends, all of the reasons for joy at Christmas time, of all of those reasons, the death of Christ stands at the pinnacle of them. The cross of the Lord Jesus is the great hope, the great reason for joy at Advent. Not simply because Jesus was born, but because He was born in human flesh that would one day bear wounds that we deserved. The servant's sacrifice was personal. The last feature, we should note that the servant's sacrifice was effective. Substitutionary, receiving the punishment, personal in his body, and it was effective. Notice the finality, the effectiveness, the completion in verse 5. By his wounds, we are healed. I wish we had time to unpack the glory of that little phrase. It's not by His wounds we are made healable. <laughs> it's not by His wounds nine out of ten steps to be healed have been done. It's by His wounds we are, linking verb, we are healed. That's what we are. It's done. It's finished. Accomplished. You were sick, now you're healed. You were lost, now you're saved. By His wounds, it's over. The servant didn't merely make healing possible. He accomplished healing in the shedding of His blood. And His blood was not shed in vain. Every moment of Jesus' suffering was purposeful. And every aspect of His sacrifice was powerfully and eternally effective. The servant was not pierced at random, you see. And He was not pierced generally. He was pierced for His people. He was wounded for His straying sheep. And in receiving their punishment, the servant accomplished their salvation once and for all. It's effective. Brothers and sisters, what we've just briefly described from these verses is nothing less than the love of God for His people. It's nothing less than the love of God. Nearly everyone you meet will agree with you that God is love. And indeed, even the Bible says just that. God is love. And yet, we often miss the connection between the love of God and the cross of Christ. In fact, many people find the idea of God punishing His own Son on the cross to be the opposite of love. Some people have even called it barbaric, that God would punish His own Son. But that's not at all how the Bible speaks about the love of God. 
Throughout the New Testament, you find the cross of Jesus not in opposition to God's love, but the very demonstration of it. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. 1 John 4. God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Galatians 2. Over and over again. In the grand song of the Gospel, this is the note that the New Testament keeps singing. The love of God in the cross of Christ. And Isaiah's contribution is to help us see that this love was costly, it was sacrificial, it was to bear our punishment, and it was effective. When we say God is love, we're not talking about sentiment. We're talking about the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, one of the great blessings of Advent is that it reminds us year after year of the unfathomable love of God. And nowhere do we see that love more clearly and more fully than in the sacrifice of the Savior on the cross. So if you struggle with doubting the Father's love, please hear me on this. Don't look for answers in God's willingness to make much of you. That's not love. Look for answers in the cross of the Lord Jesus. It's in the Savior's blood that you see the love of God. And as we read in Romans chapter 8, He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Why? Because He loves His people, and He loves them to the end. We have to keep moving. Though if you're like me, I'd like to just camp out in verses 4 to 6. Let's note just briefly the final two truths about the Savior. The fourth truth comes in verses 7 to 9. The humility of the Savior. Glory, suffering, sacrifice. Now we see the humility of the Savior. There's a lot in verses 7 to 9. But the main point is that the servant of the Lord suffered innocently and willingly. He did not deserve to die, for he was innocent before God. Notice verse 9. He had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. In both word and deed, the servant was innocent. At the same time, the servant did not object either. He didn't protest his case. Instead, the servant went willingly to his end. Notice the language in verse 7. How the servant went like a lamb to the slaughter. Sheep are known for being very docile, even to the point of going willingly to, to be sheared. They don't try to buck and run away. They just go along quietly. And so it was with the servant of the Lord. He didn't protest. He went willingly to the end in his innocence. Friends, think of the gospel accounts of Jesus' trial before the Jewish Sanhedrin. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all make a point of describing Jesus' silence before the Sanhedrin. Remember, they're falsely accusing him of heinous crimes for which you would deserve to die. And yet Jesus stands there in every instance silent in his innocence. Why is the Son of God silent? before his accusers. There are a number of reasons, but none more powerful than Isaiah 53. That's why. Like a sheep that is led to the slaughter, so the Lord Jesus opened not his mouth. But I want to make sure we don't misunderstand Jesus' silence. I really want to make sure we don't understand Jesus's, we don't misunderstand Jesus' silence. 
When Jesus remains silent in fulfillment of Isaiah 53, He is not displaying weakness. He is not a victim. He's not silent because He's afraid. No, Jesus is silent because He's strong. So strong, in fact, that He willingly submits Himself to the will of God. Friends, don't let anyone ever tell you that submission to God and to His Word is a sign of weakness. Don't believe that. That's from the devil. Submission to God and to His Word is the pinnacle of strength. And that's, what Jesus, that's why Jesus is silent before His accusers. And remember the end result of His silence. Apostle Paul's words in Philippians 2, being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name. Friends, that's the reward of Jesus' humility. That's the reward of His silence because the Savior humbled Himself in obedience to God. The Father exalted Him to the highest place. You see, there's no weakness in the silence of our Lord. There's only strength. The strength of submission to God that leads finally to glory. All of that to say, friends, as we praise God for Christ during the Advent season, one particular reason for praise is Jesus' humility. His humility, because without His humility... Without His strong and silent submission to God, there is no salvation for us. In that sense, you could say there's never been a silence so loud as that of the Lord Jesus on His way to the cross. The humility of the Savior. That brings us to the end of our far too brief overview of this magnificent chapter. Verses 10 to 12 give us the last truth. It's the triumph of the Savior. A triumph. Glory, suffering, sacrifice, humility, triumph. The overall point of this stanza is that death is not the end for the servant of the Lord. Death is not the end. Instead, there is victory that the servant will enjoy and then share with his people. This hope of triumph informs every verse in the last stanza. Notice verse 10 where the servant will see his offspring and prolong his days. So even though the servant dies, there is what can only be called a resurrection to new life, verse 10 implies. The servant will prolong his days. He'll keep living. He will triumph and God's plan will be accomplished through him. Notice also verse 11, where the servant is satisfied with the outcome of his anguish. His suffering causes the unrighteous to be counted as righteous before God. Because the servant bore their iniquities, the servant's people are justified before God. There's this exchange between the servant and his people. The servant takes the sins, the people get righteousness, acceptance, justification in the sight of God. Again, the note is triumph, victory, success. Suffering is not the end for the servant of the Lord. Notice finally verse 12, where the servant receives his reward and then shares it with his people. The language in verse 12 is that of conquest where a champion who has won the battle receives his his share of the spoil and then he divides it with all of his men even though they didn't fight. That's what the servant will do. Having borne the sins of his people, the servant receives his reward from God and then amazingly the servant shares that reward with his own. Overall then, that final stanza is just jammed full of hope. The, 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 the song, the poem ends with hope 
Yes, the servant is despised and rejected. He's pierced and he's crushed. He's wounded and he's led to the slaughter. He's cut off from the land of the living. But in the end, the suffering sacrificial servant triumphs. And he lives. And he's rewarded and receives his glory. Friends, is this not the gospel testimony of Jesus Christ on display some 700 years before he came? Having suffered to the, point of je- uh, to, the, to the point of death, the Lord Jesus rose again on the third day. He prolonged His days to all eternity, never to die again. And having conquered death, the Lord Jesus received from the Father all authority on heaven and on earth. And now through His Word, the Lord Jesus shares that authority with His church. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, the Lord Jesus says. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, the risen Christ commands us. He receives the reward of authority, and then He shares that reward with His church through His Word. But even more, the resurrection life that Christ secured in His suffering, He now gives it to everyone who trusts in His name. Like a mighty warrior, Jesus crushed death, and through the Gospel, He shares the victory with us as we're saved and redeemed and promised New life. And most astounding of all, having been made sin for us, the Lord Jesus becomes our righteousness before God. God made Him who knew no sin to be sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5. Friends, do you see how these truths that Isaiah foresaw have been realized in the Gospel of Jesus Christ? His victory is our victory. His triumph is our hope. And the Gospel tells us that the triumph of the Lord Jesus is nothing less than eternal life with God. Friends, what a rich treasure we have been given in the Gospel, in the Lord Jesus. Please understand that for the Christian today, we stand in a better position than even Isaiah. The prophet Isaiah foresaw these truths 700 years before Christ, but Isaiah saw them Dimly. We, on the other hand, see them clearly in the light of the Gospel. We're able to rejoice in the fullness of what Isaiah saw only in shadows. Friends, that's a blessing beyond measure. It's a blessing of beyond measure to see Christ in His Word and to believe. And, and so I don't, I don't have any better conclusion to our feeble attempt to explain the glory of Christ. I have no better conclusion than Paul's words in Romans 11 of the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how unscrutable His ways. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. Amen indeed. Let's pray and then let's rejoice together in song. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it speaks to us so clearly of both our needs.